Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. With me as always, the creator of the show and my co-host, Mr. Tom Jokic. Tom, this week we have a unique collection of interviews that all have something in common. That's right, Christopher. It's our Super 70s show with some, of the, <laughs> with some of the biggest names of that decade. Now, I think that really none of these artists were substantial enough to actually headline this show. But I do believe that as a collection of artists, they make for a very interesting and entertaining bunch. Now... I love the nightline. <laughs> I like... Sorry. <laughs> she is Sorry, not on this show. Keep going. Okay, Alicia Bridges is not on this show this week, Damn. although I really do need to get her on. Now, I'm going to take back what I said a second ago because I think there is one actual superstar from this group, probably the most talented and influential of the bunch, and also one of the most underrated in music history, and that's Donna mm-hmm. Summer. She'll be featured first and most prominently, and rightly so. This week's artists range from Donna Summer and Natalie Cole to Styx. And we have a brand new interview with the second biggest name in Disco Divas, Gloria Gaynor. Remember her? Oh, yeah. I talked to her a few days ago, and when I heard that I was going to interview her, at first I was afraid, I was petrified. <laughs> Nicely done. You know, I didn't even see that coming, and I got a script in front of me. <laughs> All right. Okay. And, and what I did, Christopher, I've always wanted to do this. Ever since we started this show, and we've been playing clips from the past from our archives, I've actually wanted to play them directly for the artist. And that's what I got to do with Gloria. So what I did is I played a couple of clips from an interview from our archives from 40 years ago, and Gloria Gaynor's reaction is priceless, and you don't want to miss it. Okay. We also have one of the most popular duos of the 70s, the Captain and Tennille. And although they were very likable during that era, in a very milk toast kind of way, if I may say so myself, they spend <laughs> a great deal of time in this interview defending the indefensible. The indefensible, to me, is a song called Muskrat Love. Ah. You didn't like the sound effects, the chirping and stuff? Oh, man. But anyway, it's it's a lot of fun. And she says a couple of pretty interesting things throughout this interview. And it's not a long piece, but it's very interesting. And remember, Christopher, how we used to run a feature at the end of every episode called The Wisdom of Dave? Oh, uh, silent tears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> David Lee Roth would give us little tidbits of knowledge from his days in Van Halen and his insight. And it pretty much amounted to just another collection of gas that belonged on the periodic table. <laughs> of elements so today we will feature the follow-up to the wisdom of dave called the wisdom of helen <laughs> and yes we are talking i can't about, wait we are talking about which helen which helen oh. christopher oh it's got to be ready baby it's helen ready she is strong mm-hmm. she is invincible and she's a little goofy and thankfully it is only one segment for today only but it is a beaut so let's get started with our super 70s show with the queen of disco Donna Summer. Christopher, as you know, I go through the archives and I search and search. And every once in a while, actually fairly often, the CDs are not labeled. So I don't know who's talking. And I'm listening to this woman with a lovely speaking voice, but with a Boston accent. Sorry, that was was more New York what I just did there. But she has this Boston accent that I love. And I'm going, okay, so this is a rock singer for sure. This is some... This is some sort of rock chick that I like. It's it's not Chrissy Hind. This is not Pat Benatar. Like, who is this? And it turns out to be Donna Summer. Oh my God, my mind was blown. I could. I almost sent you the audio of just like ten seconds for talking, and wanted to get you to guess who it was, right? Because I was <laughs> I so never excited. Known. And this stuff is 
excellent. So why don't you set up these interview clips from 1976? Go ahead. Tom, Donna Summer was known as the Queen of Disco. And that was a double-edged sword for a young artist because it both elevated her to royalty as the queen, but it also simultaneously pigeonholed her musically. But she had a lot more to offer than the whispery sort of moaning vocals of Love to Love You Baby, as we found out. When she showed up with songs like Bad Girls, She Works Hard for the Money, and of course, a number one cover of MacArthur Park. Let's remember that she sold over 100 million records and had four number ones in one year. Wow, wow. And what a voice. Mm -hmm. What a voice. She also comes off to me, and I think for you as well, as one of the most likable interview subjects you'll ever hear on this show. She covered a lot of musical ground in her recorded career, from dance to R&B right to rock. But when she talks about the music that she heard when she was young, that variety of styles kind of makes sense. Janis Joplin, God rest her soul. (laughs) When she first started off, before her first record was released in Boston, I mean, old groups that that I guess are non non existent now, um, Velvet Underground, and I mean Mike Bloomfield. It just it was that time when I started off, and um, I mean some of them went on to become very big groups, and others died. Now she tried a lot of different musical directions on the way to success, but her first break came while she was living in Germany. Right, and I think it was in Germany that she hooked up with Giorgio Moroder. Yeah, and I think she mentions him a little bit later in mm-hmm. this. But boy, there was a guy who had a profound influence on the sound of dance music. Yeah, well, he, um, I guess they were talking casually about the song "Je T'aime" by Jane Birkin that was out uh, the French song. Yes, I guess "Je T'aime" is French, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Oops, um, and. He was saying, well, we got to do something like that, right? Anyway, she gives you more on this. She goes to the origins of her first hit, Love to Love You, Baby, and the inspiration. What a great story this is. I wrote the lyrics, and the the idea of the song originated from me. We got the idea of the song from a song, a French song called Je T'aime. It started as as actually as as sort of a joke in the sense that I was in my office in Munich one day, and uh, our producer came in and said, you know, Je T'aime is on the market in England, and it's selling like hotcakes. I mean, I can't believe it. And I said, oh, well, why should we make, why should we listen to someone else's Je T'aime? Why don't we make our own Je T'aime? You know, sort of joke, just sort of joking with him. And he said, no, 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 you couldn't do it, you know, and everything. And I said, no, wait, you know, but why not? Why not? You know, and then I had written a song the week before called uh, Love to Love You, and I couldn't think of any other word but love to love you and it was all I could think of at the time and so I sang him that chorus line and he liked it and he changed his mind and he says no I, I do actually I do like that and I had until that time I had never re- recorded my own songs with him and uh, so we started working together on the music and you know and everything and I went home and he went in the studio for two days and came back with his girlfriend and said look you go in the studio you're going to record this and I said I'm going to record what I had totally forgotten all about the song, everything, you know. And, you know, I had contended to live. And um, he said, well, it's time to go. And I said, well, I, there are no lyrics. There's nothing. He said, well, you'll think of something. Go on in. So I started recording, you know, and I, I had, the only thing I had was the chorus line, which was love to love you. I love to love you, baby. And um, so from then on, it was ad lib. She was so underestimated, and I probably was guilty of it, too, because when you, that's the first thing you hear. You think, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, it's like listening mm-hmm. to Jane Birkin. I mean, a very limited vocal range and mm-hmm. all that. And she had to defend many aspects of her career, in particular the sort of sensuous nature of those early hits. Now, in this clip, it sounds to me like she's had to think about it. This is where the interviewer asks her if the song Love to Love You Baby falls under the category of 
Sex rock. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, boy. I don't think personally that it's sex rock. I think it's more like the mood you're in. You know, if you feel like... I mean, I basically think that people are sensuous. We've learned not to be sensuous. And we've learned not to be sensitive to things. And um, we, we tend to be shy about a lot of feelings that we feel, a lot of things that we... Um, a lot of feelings that we possess. We tend to try to ignore it because we've been taught that way. They're taught to ignore them. And, um, but basically, I think people are sensuous. And they do like, let's say, to be hugged by someone or, or just to be caressed or, or, or to feel like they're a part of something. And I, I think the record tends to give you sort of that kind of an atmosphere where you would like to be, even if no one else is there, you know, kind of thing. And, I mean, it's sort of a mood setter, I guess. It's kind of mood you, someone, as someone said to me, it's the type of mood I like to stay in. So he starts his day off with that record, and he still does after all this time, <laughs> which I think is great. Well, there you go. Okay. So here you get some idea of the intensity of the criticism that she faced early on. The there was a ravaged reverend in Philadelphia or somewhere I don't, in America, and he was burning the record because he said it was causing young, innocent teenagers to participate in... Um, <sighs> physical activities that are not of their age, you know, and so forth and so on. And he partitioned and he protested that record and among among a, a few others. And um, we talked to him, um, our record president, uh, our record company president, Neil Bogart, had a long discussion with him, a debate on radio. And in the end, he backed down and said, well, I guess, you know, I guess you're right. When people say it corrupts children, I mean, I just can't, I can't agree on it. I think to pick up a book where naked girls are in it is more corruptive. It's more corruptive. You can't even use that word. <laughs> it's more corrupting, maybe. And, um, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm a vile or a vulgar person, and I would really hate for anyone to consider me that. Okay, so, but that guy eventually came around. That's yeah. very interesting. Now, let's talk a little bit about Giorgio, and let's talk specifically about the song I Feel Love. Adam, fire up a few seconds of the beginning of that song where the beat comes in. Okay, so listen to that. Listen to how insistent and how electronic that beat is. And know that that was one of the very first times that was ever heard on the radio. And equate that to what we've been hearing on the radio now for a good 10 years, maybe even 20 years. I believe that that song and that sound was groundbreaking in its day, and it foreshadowed what was to come. Oh, very much so. Mm-hmm. And in the New Wave era, a lot of the British bands were very influenced by that and by craft work and that kind of thing. Sure. Did you ever see Donna Summer play live? I did. And it was a really unusual circumstance. She only did two songs. I was in Nashville in the early 90s, and there's a guy named Harlan Howard hmm. who wrote uh, I Fall to Pieces. And okay. uh, just an incredible catalog of some of the greatest country songs ever written. And to honor him on his birthday, they have the Harlan Howard picnic, or they used to. Uh-huh. And it was in a, like a parking lot on Music Row and behind one of, the, one of the big buildings. And all of these major artists, like the Dixie Chicks and Lyle Lovett and all these people get up and play a song. I love Lyle. I mean, it's, it's, it was amazing. And to my surprise, Donna Summer got up with her husband, Bruce Sudano, as the only accompaniment, and she sang a couple of songs. And if you ever had any doubt about her capabilities as a vocalist, they would be laid to rest in that moment. Oh, wow. It was spectacular. Breathtaking, hair-standing-up spectacular time. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
And what a loss it was. You know, she died uh, in 2012 only at the age of 63. And she died of lung cancer even though she never smoked. Mm. And she attributed her lung cancer to the air in New York City post 9-11. Wow. Isn't that terrible? I was just shocked when she passed away. May 17th, 2012. Donna Summer. Some great stuff from her from the mid-70s here on Famous Lost Words. This is the Super 70s edition of Famous Lost Words. <laughs> Tom, thank you for putting all these bits and pieces together. And also, you got a fantastic opportunity very recently to talk to Gloria Gaynor. Wow. It was a real thrill. So, Gloria, the name of this show is Famous Lost Words. It's a, a show in which we dig up old interviews with artists from our archives. And we go back very, very far. So what I want to do is I want to start by playing a clip of you speaking to us 40 years ago. This is an interview with you, and it's only 20 seconds long, so just bear with me. From 1978, okay? The first one is you talking about how you got started singing. So this is you 40 years ago, Gloria Gaynor. Well, I started singing in uh, Newark, New Jersey. I was in a nightclub one night, and uh, uh, the manager of the club went to the band and told them that he knew me, that I was... uh, his downstairs neighbor, he'd been hearing me sing, and would they please call me up? So they called me up, and I sang, and afterwards the band came over and asked me to perform with them. And I started performing with them the very next night. I've been singing ever since. So, what do you think when you hear that person, first of all, and what, about what you said? I think that she sounds like a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what she said is absolutely true. And uh, I, I, I still think that's an amazing story that I've always believed that God engineered. Yes, and you have very strong faith. You know, that's been um, an overriding part of your music, probably for almost the better part of that 40 years. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to play you one more clip, and it's about the same length. It's not too long. And here it is you, back then, 40 years ago, talking about the song, mm-hmm. I Will Survive. Well, it was written to, to for anyone who has been sort of downtrodden and has... Uh, lost touch with his own self-determination and self-reliance. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it calls on your, your self-determination and reliance, and it's antidepressant, and that's what it's meant to be, not just for women, but for anyone. And you know, I would suggest that, that what you said then is pretty much exactly what you feel now. It is a song of empowerment for whoever chooses to embrace it. But that song has meant so much to you. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it has meant so much to me because it's meant so much to so many people. It has become um, the core of my, my purpose, and it's, it's just a wonderful thing to have for, for people to come up to you everywhere I go Uh, and tell me how this song has uplifted, empowered, and uh, encouraged them to make it through the difficult times of their lives. For sure. And you fought really hard for that song to be released as a single, didn't you? Yes, I did, because it was originally, uh, as you know, the the, the B-side. And the record company, the president of the record company, had chosen another song for me to record for the A-side. No one wanted to go against his decision, and so they wouldn't even listen to our work if I 
when we told them about it. And you know, a lot of people obviously connect you with the song I Will Survive, and rightfully so. But I gotta tell you, I think my favorite performance by you is Never Can Say Goodbye. It is such a beautiful, (laughs) clean performance. And I want people to make sure that when they think of you, they think of that song as well as as many others. But Never Can Say Goodbye is incredible. Thank you. I've heard that quite often. You were also one of the innovators in the practice of recording albums where there was no break in between songs. So kind of almost like the yes. disco mix. The beat just kept going on between each song. Did you know how right. influential that would become? Well, I believe it would become very influential. The reason why we did it is because there were several reasons. Number one, we, uh, my, that was, uh, it was the idea of Tom Moulton. He brought the idea to me, and I thought, awesome, because I'm a dancer. I mean, I love dancing. I love to dance. I love to dance. I love to watch dancing. And uh, that three minutes that a song was in those days was never long enough for me to be on the dance floor. Right. So for those songs to segue one right into the other, this was before DJs started doing that on their own, hearted mixing like that on their own. Um, That was wonderful for me. And the other thing that I thought of was that in those days, I, I think probably the same now, DJs were in a little booth, mm-hmm. you know, on radio. And they were stuck in that booth for hours during their however long they were on the air. So now they've got 18 minutes where they can go and take a break. Right. So they're going to play my record more often. That's right. That's a very practical way of looking at it. You know, Gloria, we only well, have a few more... Practical. <laughs> we only have a few more seconds with you, so I definitely want to ask okay. you about your new gospel album coming out in January called Testimony. Absolutely. That, that is uh, so exciting for me. I'm really looking forward to it. We have several duets on it. We have Jason Crabb. We have um, Yolanda Adams. I also want to point out that you're going to be part of the Disco Cruise that's coming up in February, so we're looking forward to hearing more of that. Just one more quick question, and that is, looking back 40 years from the person that you heard at the very beginning of our interview, what would you tell that person now, 40 years ago? If you could go back in time and meet Gloria Gaynor from 1978, what would you say to her? (laughs) Oh, my God. Be still. Be still and just watch God work. Gloria Gaynor, thank you so much. Good luck with everything. Have fun on the disco cruise. And good luck with the new gospel album in January called Testimony. Thank you so much. Have a nice. Okay, Christopher, we have a lot of audio from the band Sticks, right? And um, we're going to play some of that in the near near future. But one thing I want to do right now is I want to play just one clip of Dennis DeYoung, the lead singer at the time and the writer of the song "Lady," to talk about how that song became a hit. That's the song that, for better or for worse, launched Sticks onto the charts, depending on whether you're a fan or not. So here's Dennis DeYoung talking about how the song slowly, eventually, and finally became a hit. Yeah, I wrote the song in nineteen. 19- 72 and uh, it was for our second album and I wrote the I wrote the song basically it was about uh, it's loosely based on uh, an experience I had with my wife when we were very young and um, you know I met her when we were in high school and that and it's 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 you know basically a love song a ballad of some sort and uh, uh, that's you know there's I don't think there's any philosophical implications to the words it's just basically a love song you know relationships between two people and it was released early 73, and it didn't do much. 
you know, and Sticks 2 really didn't do much either when it was released, and like about uh, two years later, Lady uh, took off nationally in, in, in the United States on uh, uh, WLS, as you mentioned, WLS, they started playing the song. And uh, it was quite, you know, quite by accident. It, was, it wasn't being charted anywhere. No one was playing it. The record, to our mind, had been a dead issue. And we'd always had faith in, you know, our second album and a lot of faith in that particular song. But nothing ever panned out. But, uh, we, but because of the fact that nothing ever panned out for us, we were forced to play in Chicago almost all the time. And uh, we, we created a real big following for ourselves in Chicago. And uh, what would happen was that we'd play a concert in Chicago and... Uh, the, the next day, the um, the people would be calling up the radio stations requesting Lady. So what 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 finally transpired was that over a 16 month period, um, Lady became was in the top five requested songs in Chicago for like 16 months, and uh, it was in the top five on WLS. Our music director Jim Smith was amazed at that, and uh, so he decided to play it. And he said he would uh, play it once a night until it was a hit because he believed in the record. And uh, that doesn't happen very often, as we all know. Isn't that interesting? So how many times, Christopher, have we heard the story of a DJ who was a fan maybe turning over the B-side mm-hmm, of a record mm-hmm. or or just kind of getting behind a band and completely changing the fortunes? You know, Lady was not a hit originally, and this guy, these people at this radio station, they turned it around for them, and, and they launched Sticks, and that was a permanent, they were a permanent fixture on the charts for many years to come after that. Yeah. I love those stories because mm-hmm. you think, well, there but for fortune, we might never have heard this song. That's right. You know? That's right. And some big, big songs reached us that way. Oh, for sure. But of course, it also launched Sticks in a big way with songs like Come Sail Away, right. Light Up. By the way, I met Dennis DeYoung a few years later, many years later, and I was telling him about my favorite Sticks song. It's a song called Born for Adventure. He wrote it. It's on the Sticks Equinox album. And I was very excited. He goes, oh, yeah, he goes, I kind of remember that. I think that was about a pirate or something. <laughs> Hilarious. Like, I'm so into yeah. it. I think that he's going to be happy that I'm not talking yeah. about Come Sail Away for the 1,000th time, right? Right. And, and he goes, yeah, I think that was oh, about well. a pirate. <laughs> but he was terrific. He was a lot of fun. He performed for us in the studio, just him and the keyboard. And, oh. man, he made it happen. He was terrific. Wow. He's got a goofy sense of humor, a bit of a, hey, Vegasy kind of sense of humor. But, nevertheless, he's extremely likable. Speaking of terrific entertainers, you probably know this, mm-hmm. that uh, Larry Gowan yes. is in fact now a card-carrying member of Styx, and right. has been for some time. For our listeners outside of Canada, Larry Gowan was an artist who had many solo hits in Canada, including Criminal Mind, Strange Animal, cosmetic songs like that. And when Larry joined Styx, he actually came into our studios, I remember it well, it was 1999, he brought in his keyboard, just like Dennis DeYoung did a few years later, he sat down and he single-handedly played the entire Come Sail Away song. Wow. And he blew us all away. He's in a phenomenal the musician. He, he really sure is. is. And I'm going to get him as a guest for our show. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay. Very funny guy. Larry, come on in. Tom, what a Wilson Phillips. Hmm. Rufus Wainwright. Can I start singing every time you mention Ziggy someone? Marley? Okay. <laughs> Jacob Dylan and Roseanne Cash all have in common. They were all in the Beach Boys. <laughs> <laughs> they were all in Casey and the Sunshine Band. Um, okay, it was too easy. They all have parents who were very successful musical artists named Brian and John, Bob, Bob, 
and Johnny, respectively. Wow. <laughs> so, now, as we know, the legacy of famous parents is mixed. Mm-hmm. But the kids always, at some point, have to stare down the people who say their success is a product of who their parents are. Mm-hmm. Well, one artist who kind of challenged that idea, and I thought a really creative and obviously hugely successful way, was Natalie Cole. When she did the duet that was created in the studio with her late father, Nat King Cole. It was the hit Unforgettable. It had been one of her dad's best-known songs, and she turned it into her own on an album that sold over 7 million copies in the U.S. alone yeah. and received multiple Grammy Awards. And you know, that Unforgettable album was sensational. You know, she did the duet with Nat, and it, and it was great. And the way they transposed the keys to fit her and then fit him is interesting. But also... Um, she does a lot of his songs just by herself, you know, whether it's uh, I Love You for Sentimental Reasons or Straighten Up and Fly Right. It's an excellent album. You know, she, she'd already had a few big hits by then, um, including This Will Be. And so she was at least a little bit established, but she could never fully break out of that shadow. But it was so cool when she decided not to break away from the shadow. Yeah, she resisted for a long time. And by the way, she's recorded a couple of Christmas albums that are absolutely sensational. I think one is called The Holly and the Ivy, and the other one is Natalie Cole live with the um, live with the London Symphony Orchestra, and she does the Nat Cole thing again where she teams up with her dad on the Christmas song, and it's just as good as Unforgettable. You mean Chestnuts Roasting, that one? The, yeah, the, the Christmas, Christmas song. song? Yeah. Oh, wow. This interview from the late 70s, we did talk about the challenge for her of being the daughter of Nat Cole. Well, it's been both. It's been a half one, and, uh, you know, a uh, half dozen of the other because um, there's a lot of pressure involved uh, to be good. Any time that you are in any way related to such a great talent as my father, people are surely, surely going to think that you should be able to do something. And if you have the nerve to get up there and say that that, uh, you know, you are Nat Cole's daughter, son, cousin, uh, niece, nephew, whatever it may be, uh, people will think that uh, it's just a natural tendency to think that uh, you're going to do great things. But um, it also helps because people will listen to you a lot quicker. Had I been just Natalie Smith or Natalie Jones, I think that I might uh, still be uh, going through the doors and not uh, possibly not where I am right now. And and what's great is that she's just saying, you know what? It was a fantastic help as well. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a lot to live up to, yes, but it's a huge boost out of the box, right? I think it was on the back cover of Unforgettable, where there's a picture of Nat King Cole at the piano, oh, and Natalie, I think, as on his girl. lap, just on, and it's yes. just so loving, it's so great, and you know, boy, was he taken way too soon? He was so influential, and his TV show was one of the first by a black performer, and he was so groundbreaking in himself, and he had one of the finest voices in the history of music, and I don't think people talk about him as much as they should, nor her. And her recent passing was very tragic as well. Well, Nat Cole's uh, biggest hits, of course, were like, you know, the lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer, those, those mm-hmm. kind of hits from the, from the 60s. Um, but for me, the years that really resonate are the jazz trio years. Right. When, when he does songs like you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, Straighten Up and Fly, right? Right. And he is a monster piano player. Exactly. You want to hear his version of Route 66? He did a couple yes. different versions. So he did a, 
uh, a jazzier, a little bit more mainstream version later on, just like the Christmas song. He recorded three different versions of the Christmas song, yeah. I believe. And the one we know, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, was actually a cover of the song of the version that he did many years earlier, even wow. though he didn't write the song. Mel Torme did. That's right. So, so I did meet Natalie once. Oh, great. Speaking of Christmas, it yeah. was a party that David Foster had for a Christmas album, and mm-hmm. he had, had Natalie on as one of the guests. Mm-hmm. And, and they were probably doing My Grown Up Christmas List. I think that's the song. That sounds right. That he did with her, yes. That sounds right. So I was introduced to her, and the person introduced us said, oh, this is the guy that wrote Black Velvet. <gasps> I know, and she was like, "Oh well," <laughs> right? <And> she, <laughs> she had this really funny look on her face. And then she said, "Did you write that other song?" And I went, um, "What song?" <laughs> and she proceeds to sing like five inches from my face. She went into "Love Is What You Wanted to Be." She started singing a lot yes. of song to me. And That's right. That was one of those moments when just all the hair stood up on my arms, and I was just—I had this stupid smile on my face that I could not remove. And you did write that song too, yeah. "Love Is." Oh, that's fantastic! Look at that. Isn't it cool that Natalie Cole knew who you were? That's great. That's great. Christopher, does the name Pauline Matthews mean anything to you? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, that's the real name of Kiki D, who had two big notable hits in North America anyway. One was I Got the Music in Me, which right. is a great song, just a great song. And uh, also her duet with Elton John, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. That's a great song. That's too. a great song, yeah. right. But here she is now talking about the song I Got the Music in Me. Well, it was very interesting, in fact, because the song was lying around for a couple of years. Um, a keyboard player that I was working with called Bias Bushell wrote the song. Um, we were looking for for up-tempo numbers to do for live performances. Uh, and Bias said, oh, I've, you know, I've got a song I wrote a couple of years ago which could be quite nice to, you know, for a stage number. And he played it to me and I just freaked out because it's such a great song. Um, you know, so it was really ironical because it was sitting in a publisher's office for two years and no one, no one you know, did it at all. So it was um, just one of those lucky things. But I, th- I think I think the song would have been a hit. You know, whoever recorded it, I think it was very strong. That's a great story. I just love that song. There's so much heart and soul in that song. I am surprised that Kiki D was not a bigger artist. I really am. Because in a way, she's a one-hit wonder other than the duet that she had with Elton. Right. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of the duet she had with Elton... Boy, some interesting stuff here, including where that song was recorded. Don't go breaking my heart. Here's the story of her duet with Elton John, Kiki D, talking about that. Elton and I have talked about, before we talked about doing an album together, of, you know, all the great duet songs, which we probably will do at some point anyway. Um, beginning of last year, Elton was, was recording the Blue Moves album in Canada. Uh... And he got an idea for this song in the studio. So he called me up, told me about it, and said, you know what, I'd like to do a duet with him. So I did. Uh, I think it was one of the first times, in fact, that Elton's written a tune before uh, Bernie's given him a lyric to write to. They did the tracks there, because Elton knows my voice so well. And he did a vocal with it. And then he came over to London, where I was. Um... We were actually going to do another vocal together, but Elton's vocal that he put down was so good that he just spent some time with me, you know, teaching me the song in the studio uh, at the same time as I I actually put the vocal on. So it was quite fun. You know, I learned the song in a couple of hours and uh, did my vocal to his 
vocal that he'd done in Canada. There you go. Good stuff from Kiki D from the late 70s. Uh, a couple of great songs that she was telling us And about. a reference to the Blue Moves album recorded in Toronto. Right. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward along with Tom Jokic, and you are listening to our Super 70s show. And you know, the husband-wife duo of Daryl Dragon and Tony Tennille had, let's say, a relatively brief but highly successful career in the 1970s. Daryl been in the Beach Boys touring band, and Tony was writing musicals. And he got her a gig, believe it or not, playing with the Beach Boys, making her the one and only Beach Girl. Oh. That's cool, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Their first hit, and I, I guess probably their biggest one, Love Will Keep Us Together, was written by Neil Sedaka. That's right. And you know at the end of the song, they actually sing Sedaka is back in the lyrics at the very end. Wow. Mm. And it was subsequent to that that he got signed by Elton John for his label, right? Right. Well, it's, let's face it, it's a classic pop song. Um, and it went to number one on Billboard, won them a Grammy Award, and led to a string of hits, including the Billboard Top 5 muskrat love oh no <laughs> i was just saying those words oh. and it, they had their own tv show on abc from 76 to 77 mm-hmm. and you know what surprised me in my you know incredible research yes um was that tony who is a gifted vocalist yes. and musician mm-hmm. continued to do session work as a backup singer even while they were topping the charts and she worked with elton john uh Art Garfunkel, the Beach Boys. And are you ready for this? She sang vocals on Pink Floyd's The Wall. Ah, you know why I'm so mad right now? Because I was going to throw <laughs> that fact back at you a little bit later on on this show. Yeah. <laughs> to start our Captain and Tennille segment, Tony talks about how they chose the material for their albums. Well, before we ever go into the studio, we have selected every tune for the album. And our criteria... For, ju- for picking tunes is that we both have to be equally excited about the song. And that's where we have our, that's where we go round and round, is when we're picking tunes for the album, because I'll come up with something and say, I love this tune, this is a great tune, let's do it, and he'll say, I hate it. I don't want to work on it. Or he'll come up to me and say, this is a great tune, and I'll say, the lyrics are terrible. So we have to really equally like what we do, and so we're very excited about every song we put on the album. Sure, you know, some of them are not going to be suitable for a single hit just by virtue of being too long. Like we have one on our new album called Easy Evil that we just love, but it's six minutes long, so we know it would never be a single. Muskrat Love wasn't supposed to be a single. Yeah. Tell the story of Muskrat Chosen because WISM in Madison, Wisconsin, started playing it, got to number one for six weeks on their chart, and they were, they were reporting it to, you know, Billboard and that kind of stuff, and Gavin reports, and... Uh, Suddenly, uh, A&M hit on us. This looks like a single for you. So uh, it broke out of that area. It went to number one or three in the nation. Yeah, it was never supposed to be a single. It turned out to be our second largest selling single after Love Will Keep Us Together. Muskrat Susie, Muskrat Sam Do the jitterbug out in Muskrat Land And they shimmy Muskrat Love oh. must be... <laughs> Tom is offended. I'll handle this one. (laughs) He's lying down. He has a case of the vapors now. Um, Must be one of the most unlikely hit records of that era. Uh, Here, Tony Tennille talks about how they found the song. Well, we first heard it. I I know exactly where I was. I was on Ventura Boulevard. We were pulling into service station to get gas. And on the radio, uh, which is where we find a lot of tunes too, by the way, uh, was America's version of Muskrat Love. And I think the reason that song didn't get any higher on the charts than it did in their version was because 
they mixed the lyrics way down in the mix and I couldn't understand what they were saying but it was something about muskrats which I thought was really unique and I said Daryl I think this is something about muskrats making love let's find out what it is so we went down to the music store and luckily enough they had the sheet music there which is real unusual because it wasn't a big hit for them to have the sheet music was unusual and I read the lyrics and just was knocked out by the lyrics they were so clever and so humorous and I said we gotta start doing this song in the club so we did and it was a huge hit in the clubs when we were working we had to do that song at least twice a night as people wouldn't let us out of the place so when it came time to do album number two we said let's put it on it's a favorite let's let's put it on just for fun so we did oh but seriously okay so they hear <laughs> have you heard america's version of muskrat love have you heard their version the uh, original if i just have i have it. long forgotten it oh and listen i love love will keep us together i think that's a great song i think they were a very dynamic and fun duo and they did uh, do that to me one more time wasn't my cup of tea but i understand the appeal of that song i cannot think of a worse song than muskrat love other than we built this city but that's another story for another day <laughs> and <laughs> and and the fact that they're just you know I knew I knew you were going there and right. I'm just going to take it I'm, seriously. You know, defending, I'm going to turn the other headphone just so you know. Defending the indefensible is what I'm calling this segment. Mm. You should not spend so much time justifying recording the song Muskrat Love because you thought it was clever. Oh. Dear God, Wait a this no, has got to stop. I said nothing of the sort. No, no, not you. Her. She says oh, she her. thought it was oh, okay. clever and fun. Oh, right. no, no, no. Well, the reactions to Muskrat Love, <laughs> it's like including Tom Jokic's, yeah. were mixed, to say the least. The woman that objected to the song, as I understand, was a woman by the name of, who calls herself Lady Keith, who at one time was married to an English lord, had divorced him and was remarried to an American businessman. I think you should drop lady when you're not married to the lord anymore. But she's one of these sort of, of political groupie types who sort of is always there at political gatherings and she took it upon herself to, you know, say, oh, it was inappropriate for royalty, it was sexual overtones or whatever. I don't know, she was carrying on. I just think it's a humorous, lovely, fun song and I don't think there's anything dirty about it unless your mind is in a sewer somewhere. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Tony uh, also talks about the breadth of their appeal. I think that that Top 40 MOR thing is getting real um, difficult to divide now. You you can look at the Top 40 and you'll have everything from uh, something by um, uh, Barbara Streisand, who to me is, you know, queen of MOR, to some real hard rock thing happening, and it's all on the Top 40 station. So I think anything goes on Top 40 these days. and. Uh, I think that what happens with us is that our music happens to appeal to a very wide age range, which is going to put us on both levels. In other words, uh, an example is like Bay City Rollers. Only the kids like the Bay City Rollers, right? The parents don't dig it. Andy Williams, only the parents like Andy Williams. The kids don't dig it. But with us, if you look at our audiences at a concert, you'll see it's a wide range. we got everything, kids and parents. So I think that's why we cross over. I hate categorizing I'm, i mean just i can't stand it but uh if, if you got to i would say we're pop we're pop we are i mean i hate mor i hate we're definitely not hard rock you'd have to say we belong in that genre which is pop music no categories please oh boy <laughs> now, we've seen this this next thing before if you were looking for an opinion on punk rock i mean who would you ask hmm Tony Tennille, right? <laughs> of course. 
Yes. <laughs> well, now, I, I have to say, because I have never seen a punk rock group perform, so it's going to be really hard for me to judge. If they're good musicians, if they're fine musicians, and if the music is excellent, I don't care what they do. But uh, if, they're, if they're bad musicians and they're only trying to make it on dressing weird and, you know... Because our own label signed a group of Sex Pistols in, in London, and it was quite a scandal because they signed them and then they had to dump them within a few days and pay them quite a bit of money to get out of the contract um, because they were in there, you know, rowing up on the floors at the signing ceremony, and I think that's kind of gross, really. Uh, but if they were superb musicians and did that, well, I might have to give in a little bit to the way I feel. But if they're, you know, they're just so-so musicians, I think it's going to pass. Gonna That's great stuff on our Super 70s edition, The Captain and Tennille. Okay, so hold that thought. Tony Tennille talking about punk rock is one thing. But we're going to end this episode. By the way, as I've just realized over the last several minutes, we've got so many other artists from the 70s that we would do well to feature in another 70s episode. So in a few more weeks, I'm going to get a whole bunch more together. I know we've got Three Dog Night. I know we've got Alice Cooper. It'll probably be a little bit more rock-oriented the next time, but hey, I can't even guarantee that. But let's end this episode by talking about punk rock once again, but this time we do it in an episode we call The Wisdom of Helen with Helen Reddy. <laughs> Helen what do you think about punk rock? What do I think of punk rock? It was very interesting. I was rereading uh, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire again recently, and he gives five reasons why the empire fell. One of them, one of the reasons when he talks about the arts, he says uh, that they degenerated and uh, that freakishness, which was masquerading as originality, became the popular mode. And I think we're reaching a similar level with punk rock. I prefer punk punk M.O.R., which I feel is my sound. <laughs> she, you know what? I uh, Listen, she comes off as being like very self-aware, I think. That's that funny. You know what? I, God I bless that, her. That if that I quote. can find more clips of Helen Reddy talking like that, we are definitely doing the wisdom of Helen. All right, you have your mission. For sure. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed the Super 70s edition of Famous Lost Words. Special thanks to Adam Karsh, our producer. And also, you want to thank Tim. Tim Friedlander here at Soundbox in Los Angeles in Hollywood, California. I'm Tom Jokic. I'm Christopher Ward. We'll see you next time. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod and on Facebook at Famous Lost Words. 